The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member at tntradio.live. This is Talking Tech with Alex Zaharoff-Royt on today's News Talk TNT. Hello and welcome to the newest show on TNT Radio. My name is Alex and this is Talking Techs with Talking Tech with Alex Zaharov-Royt. We'll look at the biggest consumer and business tech topics each week with news, reviews, views and interviews with notable tech experts, executives and more. From cybersecurity to AI, from Apple to Microsoft, from Meta to X, gaming to home automation and plenty more, this is your weekly dose of the biggest bits and bytes in cyberspace. Now, I want to thank you for either listening to or watching TNT Radio Live's 24 by 7 television news network. I first learned about TNT Radio in early 2023, and ever since, I've been hooked. Chris Smith, who is one of the stars of TNT Radio and who will be my first guest later today, has his own show every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. He allows me to join him every Wednesday for Cyber Wednesdays, where we look at the biggest tech topics of the week, just after the 4.30 p.m. news headlines, right through to the 5 p.m. top of the hour. And it has been an honour and a privilege to be a part of his show and to speak with you, the loyal TNT Radio audience. So thank you very much much for being here, whether live, whether on the repeats of this show on Sunday or Monday, or whether you're watching an on-demand stream. Now, last week, I was at CES, which is the Consumer Electronics Show, the world's biggest technology trade show with over 4,000 exhibitors and 140,000 attendees from around the world. The show has two media-only days, and then there are four days where industry attendees, exhibitors, media, retailers, and the paying public mingle. Although a number of the technologies displayed were already on sale, the show represents a huge opportunity for retailers to see what products they will be ranging in the months ahead through to Christmas 2024. You know, it represents an opportunity for manufacturers to take the pulse of everyone attending. It offers a glimpse into the future, both near and far. And it also represents an intermingling of people and ideas from around the world. It's also an opportunity for viruses to intermingle with the 2020 CES seen as one of the ways that COVID first entered the US. Because so much of the world's technology is manufactured in China, and because the virus originated in China, COVID spread at CES in 2020. Now, CES is always known to cause attendees to get the CES flu. This is from a combination of people attending, uh, of working long hours, attending dinners and parties, being in the wrong time zone with not enough time to acclimatize due to the high cost of being in the US, and people bringing their germs and viruses from around the world. Now, because I knew of the risk, and because I had the two initial Pfizer shots in 2021 and then a booster shot four weeks before I attended the 2022 CES show, I knew that uh, it was a possibility to be infected. And so this time I was inspired by Dr. Thomas Barodi's discovery of ivermectin being a genuine way to protect yourself from the harsh side effects of catching COVID. So when I landed a couple of weeks ago, I started taking ivermectin, even though I wasn't yet uh, infected. I was taking quercetin, vitamin D, zinc, potassium, vitamin C, 
tea and other supplements as a preventative prophylactic measure. But after the first couple of days, I started getting a sore throat. Now, look, at first, I attributed this to only getting three hours of sleep on the second night there due to me wanting to upload as many of the videos from the first media day as possible before calling it a night. And then on the second night, having had a full day of events, there was a Samsung dinner that night where it must be said I had a couple of margaritas and plenty of food, but I was in no way heavily inebriated. Now, at the end of the night, I went back to my hotel room, but I, I couldn't sleep too well. I tossed and I turned, and in the middle of the night, to my surprise, I woke up shivering. So I put on my thermal underwear, I turned the room temperature up to 26.5 degrees Celsius, or just under 80 degrees Fahrenheit, and that was the warmest the temperature in my room went up to. So look, pretty soon I stopped shivering, I went back to bed, but I continued to toss and turn. And, you know, I thought it might have been from the great meal, the two drinks, and the tiredness from the night before, mixed in with the adrenaline and excitement of being at CES 2024. But when I got up in the morning, I felt very, very flat indeed. Now, I attributed that to effectively two nights of not much sleep and overextending myself, and I got through the day with my throat a little sore, but not actually believing at all that I had caught COVID. And indeed, the next night, I made sure that I had a solid eight hours of sleep, but I couldn't shake feeling flat. I didn't have a fever. I wasn't stuck in my room. I was at CES. The schedule was hectic. There were places to go, companies and technologies to see, people to interview, and Uber queues to wait at. Traveling at CES was definitely challenging. It was almost impossible not to be late to everything, as was the case for everybody. But by the third day, I was working as hard as possible to either be a little early or on time. But of course, this added to the stress of the event. Now, on the fourth day there, which still had a couple of days of CES to go, I saw that uh, CES was providing a COVID test called Binax. So I thought I'd test myself. Well, again, I genuinely didn't think I had anything more than a bit of a cold, you know, the CES flu, having pushed myself because of the organized chaos of CES. So I was genuinely surprised to see the COVID test was positive. I tested myself again, and as there were two tests in the pack, um, I tested positive a second time. So at this stage, I was a little alarmed as this was the first time that I'd ever tested positive to COVID in the now five years that it has existed. But I wasn't actually worried. I'd been taking ivermectin and those supplements every day, and I genuinely believe that this protocol helped me to experience what ultimately felt like a cold. Sure, I wasn't anywhere near as bursting with energy as I normally am, but I was doing everything I needed to, and despite it all, I was genuinely excited. Again, I was at CES. So for the rest of that trip, I made sure to sleep eight hours a night. I made sure to eat hot and spicy foods, always a good thing for a cold. I kept on taking the supplements, and I kept going. Now, by now, my nose was stuffy, and I was coughing a bit. And it did feel like a cold. And when I met various people after I realized I was testing positive, I did wear a mask, at least for most events, out of respect, although I didn't always do that. Now, despite others clearly suffering from a cold or flu, or I guess presumably COVID, the amount of mask wearing it was there, but it was pretty minimal. So it's only today, six days after arriving back in Australia, that my fresh and locally purchased COVID test is finally coming up negative. I live with my mother and I've been wearing a mask around her using a different bathroom and toilet, and my mother has remained COVID-free. The latest test today, also negative. So whether ivermectin will work for you 
I don't know. But I certainly attributed its powers and those of vitamin D, zinc, and the other supplements to helping me avoid any bad reactions from COVID. But without being a doctor, I'd happily advise you to seek your own advice, but try it out for yourself if you're all worried, if you're at all worried about COVID, given the supposed rise in cases around the world at this time. This is medical technology that is decades old, and for me at least, it worked. So with that story of COVID and CES out of the way, what did I actually see at the show that really stood out? Well, the first was the presence of AI everywhere. AI was in cars, it was in robots, in fridges and TVs. It's now in the AMD and the Intel chips that run your Windows PCs, at least the next ones you'll purchase, and just about everywhere else. It was the theme of the show. Samsung and LG made AI the centerpieces of their presentations, with Samsung talking about AI for all, AI and its giant TV screens, AI being able to upscale HD, the 720p content, and full HD, the 1080p content, to 8 K sharpness, transforming older 4x3 TV shows, the boxy TV shows from the 80s into sharp pictures, even transforming your older VHS recordings into much sharper video, all in real time and much more impressively than the competing 2023 television from another manufacturer that was on a side-by-side -side basis in the demo that I saw. AI was also able to automatically generate live captions and subtitles for content that didn't already have it. And for those with both hearing and vision difficulties, it was able to read those captions out loud and even translate them into different languages on the fly. Samsung screens could sharpen the contrast and make the edges of things on screen darker for those with vision impairments so they could more easily see the images on screen and could even replicate the most important buttons from usually quite small remote controls for TVs on large screen smartphones, making it easier for people to navigate and control their Samsung TVs. The on-screen user interface of Samsung's TVs was also streamlined and fast, letting you connect a Bluetooth uh, phone uh, controller and um, from either a PlayStation, Xbox, or a third-party maker like Logitech, and then stream the latest console games straight to your TV with no Xbox or PlayStation required. Look, I've got plenty more to say, but I'm, I can see here that uh, we need to take a break. So let's take a short break, and then we'll be back with plenty more about Samsung AI and CES before we talk to Chris Smith and my second guest, Peter Coronius. TNT's Darren Denslow. Yeah, I'm talking about the illness. Actually, that has done, has been doing the rounds. Not have we only seen a, uh, a mass influx of people waving their COVID tests online. Look, I got a red line. It's like, oh my God, people are testing. Or people, you know, trying to encourage others to wear their masks. Um, but there has been a talk of a dry cough. There have been doctors coming out saying we've seen loads of cases of that. Uh, have you been suffering from, you know, a bit of cough and flu or cold? Or COVID. Well, Darren, I, COVID. I, I just I just did my eighth test oh, and okay. um, I, I'm just going to keep doing it until I get lines and lines. Why? Well, because work's coming back up, isn't it? Digging deeper with D.D. Denslow on today's News Talk TNT. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans. That's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. When I had my heart event close to four years ago, I was at the gym, thought I deserve a coffee. 
and thought I'll top up with fuel, ordered a coffee. But while I was pumping fuel, I started to get chest pains. Then it got worse and worse and worse. So then I was leaning on the counter thinking, yeah, something's not quite right. So then I went to wait for the coffee and that's when it really, really hit. And Joy just, you know, mouthed, do you need an ambulance? And I remember nodding. I wasn't even thinking about a heart attack. I just thought something is seriously wrong with me here. So when the cardiologist came to see me, she informed me that I'd had what they call a widow-maker heart attack. Bit of a shock when someone says, you know, you nearly died. <laughs> Everybody should be aware of all the symptoms of a heart attack that women can have that aren't typical of the shoulder pain, the right arm pain. I go to the gym, I do yoga, Pilates, I swim, I go on bike rides, and yet I still had a heart attack. You just don't know it could be you. Our next steps to space. This time we go back to the moon to learn to live, to work, to invent, to create. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Thanks for joining us again on TNTradio.live. Now, uh, there's plenty more things to talk about. Apple also launched this week its Vision Pro, or at least they had it on pre-sale from yesterday. It will be available from February the 2nd. And there are two videos that you'll find at youtube.com slash Apple. The first is a nine minute video taking you through the features and benefits of using a Vision Pro headset. And this is clearly impressive. It makes Facebook's MetaQuest headset look more like an older smartphone from 10 years ago. And Apple's Vision Pro is more like an iPhone 15 Pro Max or a Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra in comparison. Now, there's also a three or so minute video showcasing how Apple makes the Vision Pro headset set and it's a visual feast of automation a true spectacle all its own the vision pro headset starts from us three thousand four hundred ninety nine dollars for the 256 gigabyte model with a 512 gig model and a one terabyte model also available for us four hundred dollars more the vision pro headset is as monumental a shift as the iphone was 17 years ago and i cannot wait to get my hands on one well now it's time to welcome my first guest chris smith chris is the host of the of Chris Smith's show on TNT Radio Live here every weekday from 3 to 5 p.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. And it's my very first guest on Talking Tech with Alex. So, Chris, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm touched, Alex. Thank you very much. I'm um, uh, very impressed that you've got your own program. And it is a fantastic time to have a program for all our uh, listeners and viewers right around the world. So congratulations once again. Well, thank you very much. I'm sure I'll be get, uh, be get much smoother, you know, over the uh, weeks to come. But anyway, let's quickly take a, a trip down memory lane. Can you please share a memory of your first computer and what you were using it for at the time? Sure, sure. Okay. Well, Chris is uh, just temporarily frozen. But uh, my first computer was back in 1979. This was called an Exidy Sorcerer. And actually, I was having a chat with uh, Dr. Natalia Ilyushina. I was speaking with her on Chris's show on Wednesday this week. And she was telling me that her first computer was in 1996. Her father had brought it to uh, Russia from the US on a trip. And it was a Windows 95 PC. But back in 1979, this was called an Exidy Sorcerer. It ran the Z80 chip and it ran basic. And this was two years before the IBM PC had even launched. And at the time, somebody in Western Australia was creating arcade perfect clones of uh, Pac-Man, Space Invaders, Tempest, Centipede. And it's what uh, got me into technology. After that, we got an IBM PC clone. I was using Amigas. Uh, at school, we had the Apple II. I never actually got into the Mac until it was around about, uh, well, 2011. I got my first Mac because I had my first iPhone in 2007. And I quickly learned that once you go Mac, 
You don't go back. I've been enjoying a, uh, a fantastic experience with Macs ever since, and currently I'm using the MacBook Air M2. And it's amazing how Apple has been able to transform the chip, uh, the smartphone chip that was in the iPhone and the tablet, into a desktop uh, or laptop chip that gives you, you know, hours and hours of battery life. I mean, double or triple the battery life that you'd normally get from uh, Windows PCs. And uh, you know, it was been able to run Mac software and even Windows software, or at least the software written for it, the Intel processor, which was the previous chip inside of Mac computers. Uh, and uh, look, it's just been a wonderful time. But Chris is now back with us. So Chris, please remind us what was the very first computer that you remember using it, and what were you using it for? Well, I was going to check to see what computer I had, but I, I vaguely remember using one of the first ASUS, A-S-U-S. Now, I, yep. I don't know whether that's the way they pronounce it. I don't even know whether they still make uh, laptops. Oh, yes. They yeah, do? They're, they're huge. They're, they're well, one this, of the biggest makers in the world. Well, this was an encyclopedia-sized laptop. Like, seriously, it was about, oh, you know, three inches thick. And, yep. I and I used it because I was writing a book at the time. I've written two books, and this was the first one a non-fiction book, and uh, would you believe I had it stolen when half oh. the manuscript had been printed, um, it had been uh, written, someone took it from my house, and I never got that laptop back. Uh, so it's it's bitter and sweet when I remember that first laptop. Yes, I still have some laptops that are quite thick, as, as you just described, and they are true blasts from the past. I mean, the, the black and white screens. I remember trying to play Doom on one of those uh, monitors that had uh, the, the black and white TFT screen. It was so blurry, you, you could hardly see anything. But, of course, that is all just lost in the mist of time. But uh, speaking of earlier tech, do you remember what was your first mobile phone? My first mobile phone came in the car that I bought. I bought an SUV as a young fella, and it came with a Motorola car phone. And I've I got to say, um, I thought I was pretty flash. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Well, they, those those were the days. I mean, it was on uh, the you know the movies and TV shows that they had the car phones. But then when it became something that everybody could use, well, we now live in this world where we wonder how we ever live without it. Now, Chris, the media has always been at the forefront of technology, and we'll get to that in a moment. But what attracted you to a career in the media all those years ago? Oh, look, as a young bloke, Alex, I um, could, you know, talk with a mouthful of marbles under wet cement as well. Yeah. Um, and I was one of these people that members of the family used to run away from me because I'd give them a headache because I spoke <laughs> too much. Yeah. And, and, and at the time, I was very interested in news as a young fellow. I don't know why that was the case. I think maybe the influence of my father. And so there was news and there was the ability to speak. And then um, during the school year, I think it was around about when I do we have a, uh, a pause there? I think we've just lost Chris again. Uh, I was going to ask him how we've seen technology change over the last 30 years. So, look, we'll, we'll get back to Chris in a moment. But uh, what attracted me to the media was that uh, when I was growing up, I was everybody's computer helper. Uh, when I would go to somebody's house, if you ever saw the VCR blinking 0000, that was because there had been a, a blackout of some sort. I mean, those things still happen, obviously, today. And so I would go around and I'd be, I'd be you know, everyone's tech expert. And from a young age, I just took to technology. I mean, I, I'm sort of a natural with technology. I wish I was as natural with technology as some people are as natural with women, but that's another story. So uh, I be just, just became interested in, in uh, talking. I knew that if I could talk about technology to people as easily as uh, as I'm doing right now, that I could 
talk on the media. And I remember I was driving home from Sydney the, in Australia one uh, weekend back to Canberra. I'd moved to Sydney and I was listening to the radio and there was a, um, a, a technology segment on one of the local radio stations. And I heard the presenter give some wrong information about what was uh, Netscape Navigator at the time. So I rang up and I asked, uh, you know, I, well, to speak to the presenter and I gave them the correct information and they sort of thanked me for that and they got rid of me uh, off the phone quickly. And I spoke to a friend the next Monday and I said, oh, you know, I heard this guy on this station and uh, it should be me. I should be the guy on the show. And he surprised me by saying that he used to be the top salesperson at that station. And then he would talk to the, uh, the, the presenter for me. And about six months later, I got a phone call saying, uh, hey, we need to get you uh, on the show. Uh, we'd love to invite you on. The other guy's gone out of business. He didn't pay his taxes and he's been shut down by the tax department. So can you please, um, you know, be ready for next Monday? So so I was. And, uh, you know, I just, this was in 1998. Uh, Google didn't exist yet. Uh, and for the first year, I hadn't even, um, I hadn't even, uh, you know, connected to uh, the, the the phone. But look, Chris is back. Uh, I can talk about stories all day. So, Chris, are you there? I'm sorry about this, uh, Alex. You know what happens when it comes to technology, and especially when it comes to the internet. Things aren't um, uh, a promise, and things just fall out, unfortunately. Well, the, the, look, it's it's ironic that it's happening on the uh, Talking Tech with Alex Hard of Right program. But if, but I guess if it's going to happen on this show, I mean, I've got plenty of things to talk about. So, Chris. How have you seen technology change over the last 30 or so years of your broadcast career? What have been some of the most interesting ways that you've used tech over this time? Oh, look, I think in terms of gaining information for stories, gaining information for background, you do it with a command. It's so instantaneous now. Um, in, in years gone past, I remember sitting in newsrooms and to find out the background of a major police criminal identity, you would have to arrange a deal with the local new with the national newspaper who would send you a file by courier of the stories that were you know published on that particular um criminal identity and you would go through it and take notes on it and, and this would be a process that would take you four hours well now i can get all that information in the space of around about five seconds that's been your smartphone yeah yeah, exactly. And, you know, the smartphone is as quick as the laptop, as the PC. And so I'm using my smartphone instantaneously to gather information, to look at videos and use videos from around the world. It's changed the way we report, we comment and we express an opinion. It really has. Yeah, I know small business people who've told me that they're surprised that they can run their entire business from their smartphone. They don't really need to be in front of their laptop at all. They can just do it all from the phone. So that's how far we've come. But look, today in the US, Apple's Vision Pro headset went uh, on pre-order and already the um, pre-order times are stretched into March and beyond. It's been so popular. So does the concept of a headset intrigue or excite you? And have you, you or your children ever used a VR headset? It doesn't uh, impress me too much because I simply don't find the time for that sort of thing. But I've got a 19-year-old son who uh, has just moved out of home and thank goodness he has because he is addicted to this stuff. He's addicted to these VR cameras. He's got these goggles on on a consistent basis. He's gaming. He's got monitors the size of major television sets. The bloke is obsessed and when he was at home, um, to try and get him sidetracked to focus on other things was really difficult. So I can understand. I can understand 
how clever the technology is and how addicted someone would become, especially if you are, you know, looking at videos on a regular basis and looking at your own videos because people are making their own so frequently nowadays. Mm. So I get it. I, I actually, I understand why Apple would go down this track and why it's such a popular new device. Well, I would definitely recommend you have a look at the nine-minute video that Apple is showing how the Vision Pro works because it's different to the other headsets out there. You can see through it and you can put different things in your field of view. It's a very different way of working. Uh, once you see that, you might change your mind. But look, when I first spoke with you on your very first broadcast on TNT Radio, I actually happened to be your first caller, just like you are my first guest. I brought up the topic of AI. Now, since that time, it's grown tremendously, but not everyone yet needs it to succeed in work and life. So have you experimented with AI and do you use it in any aspect of your work today? Well, I tell you what, one of my search engines was Bing um, mm. on, on a particular device. So, so an, uh, an Android phone that I had as a backup phone um, had Bing as my search engine. And I was um, asked about using AI when I was searching normal information and normal videos. And I've got to tell you, I was impressed. Now, I wasn't asking it to do, you know, four-minute editorials. I wasn't asking it to, to to give me an opinion piece on the Israeli-Gaza war. I wasn't uh, imploring it to do something difficult. But I was sort of doing things that I would normally do, and, boy, gee, it was fast. It was mm. unbelievable. Uh, and having said that, though, I don't know whether I would use it uh, in that realm as much as I I, I thought I would use it. In other words, there is nothing like sitting down and formulating your own copy, working out your commentary and your opinion. And I think the internet's dropped out again. I mean, uh, my next question was going to be how you see AI evolving over the next 12 months. I mean, for me, we've got uh, the Samsung Galaxy S24, which has also just launched on pre-order and which will be available on February the 7th. And uh, this is an incredible uh, change to the way we use our mobile phones. One of the examples is that you can now make a live a phone call to somebody who speaks a different language. And there are 13 languages to start with, but this will uh, transform later on into all the different languages of the world. And so I was making a phone call to somebody in a Spanish restaurant. This is one of the, the demos that was set up. It was a real life person. And what happened was that uh, they, they got a message saying, look, this phone call is going to be live translated. And they said, uh, hello. And I could hear it translated uh, in, in a you know, pleasant sounding voice. And then they wanted to know, well, you know, what did I want to do? And I said, well, I want to book uh, for, four people at 7 p.m. tonight and I could hear the system was translating it from English into Spanish and they then spoke back to me and I spoke to them we exchanged some pleasantries and I did notice that it didn't quite get what she was trying to say correctly I mean I speak French so I understood a little bit of, of the Spanish and I could tell that something wasn't quite right but I still got the gist of what she was saying and we successfully made the booking now um, with I then made a phone call to somebody who spoke Korean and again uh, you know it was pretty amazing and I was using pre-release software so it would be a little bit smoother. And as we've seen with Google Translate, the translation capability gets better and better all the time. And now when I show people, uh, for example, when I'm in an Uber or a taxi and often the uh, person driving speaks another language and I say to them, have you seen Google Translate? And sometimes they say, oh yeah, I've seen it. But I, I say, well, have you really seen it recently? And I show them how the camera can translate from English into their language. And they're usually quite blown away by seeing that. I use that, for example, when I go into a, a Chinese supermarket, I see a packet of chips or something in Chinese and I want to know what does it say? I mean, I know it's a packet of chips, but what flavor, you know, what is it? And the ability to just hold my phone
phone over that and see the text translated from that language into English. It's truly magical. And people are amazed also how accurate the translation is with Google Translate. Now, another one of the features that will appear on Google phones as well is called Circle to Search. So you hold the home button down um, and uh, then you can, what are you watching a video, what, whatever it is, you can just draw a circle and it will search for that thing. But look, Chris is back. <laughs> it's so funny that this is happening on this show. But uh, how do you see um, AI evolving over the next 12 months, Chris? Are you worried or you know, do you have any predictions? Uh, look, I actually think that if governments are smart enough, uh, I think we could really jump forward in terms of productivity. And in countries like Australia, productivity is never something that's used as often as it should be. And so Australia needs to jump forward when it comes to productivity in all range of sectors. And I think AI could do a m marvellous um, uh, favour for Australian uh, for the Australian economy and industries. But I don't think governments are thinking that way. I think, I think they think very negative at the moment. I think they're thinking about, well, hang on a minute, what about scammers who use AI? Well, scammers are going to use AI. People have to adapt and people have to protect their own interests a lot better. And we'll learn to do that. We might have to learn the hard way, but we'll learn to adapt. So you're not going to stop that. What people need to understand is it's a tool that does things a lot faster and smarter than we have ever seen before. That's got to be a plus. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's got to be glass half full, not half empty. But I just think governments of the world see the negatives before they see the positives. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's going to be something that just will continue to evolve and change. I mean, 12 months ago, AI was was barely brand new. Now it's something that's built into operating systems. Uh, and uh, it's just something that we're going to soon wonder how we live without just the way uh, we wonder how we live without mobile phones. But look, we're getting towards the end of the time that we have to speak together. So let's ask, a, uh, let me go into a couple of sensitive areas, but I want to tackle them head on. Now, at the time, about a year ago, you lost your jobs at 2GB and Sky News because of a secret alcohol addiction. But mid last month, you celebrated the incredible milestone of a year of sobriety, which obviously took a lot of hard work, willpower and courage. So what have you learned over this past year? And what is your message to anyone else in the same situation? Um, I've learned a lot. <laughs> uh, when you're at rock bottom, as I yeah. was, um, you learn a hell of a lot. You learn firstly to try and grip onto things that make sense to you. That is to grip onto things that matter the most. And all of my life, my work has mattered the most and probably before family, which I'm, mm. I'm quite embarrassed about. And it's only when you hit rock, rock bottom and you have to work out what the way forward is that you realise that family is more important than work. It's much more important than work. It's not uh, a, close, a, a close tie. Um, secondly, I understand who my friends are and who they aren't. That was something I also learned. But also, too, you've got to take, you've got to be able to admit what your foibles are, what your insecurities are, what your failures are, and get them fixed. And that's certainly something that I've done. I haven't, you know, steered away from admitting my frailties when it comes to long sessions on, uh, on the grog, um, that's that's well documented. I, I, you know, I can't sit there and drink for eight hours. I, I, uh, I, I carry on like a lunatic. That's just how I, how I operate. It's just me as a person. It's not nothing else is to blame. It's me as a person. And so the best way to do this is to get rid of, you know, become a sober person. And that to me, after years and years of consuming alcohol, didn't 
didn't go down too well. It was something that I didn't think I would ever be able to do. But with the help of friends, with a lot of professional help, and with my own determination to turn my life around, it's worked. And I'm up to, um, you know, close to 14 months now. And it's not a problem for me. I'm through the worst of it. I've worked out that life is a lot more rich and interesting without uh, without drinking, you get a lot more done. You're a lot more constructive. And the internet has dropped out again, <laughs> which is just one of those things. We're having a fun day today with the internet. So just I want to go quickly go back to some of the cool things with Samsung whilst we wait for Chris to come back. Uh, but, um, oh, and look, I think uh, I'm just looking at my uh, message over here. We're going to thank Chris now, and I think we're going to go to a break. So, look, Chris, thank you so much. It's uh, just one of those things. The internet's playing up. Let's go for a break on TNTradio.live. I was such a young age. Everything changed. My name is Chloe. When I was 13, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. When I found out, I just didn't know how to react. I felt like everything was just kind of closing in on me. It just became a routine. Dad's doing chemo. I'd come home from school, wait for mum to finish work, and we'd go straight to the hospital, spend a few hours there, just draw. It was hard to navigate going to school. Hundreds of kids, and I was the only one with a dying dad. He was diagnosed in March, and then he died in October. Towards the end, I heard about Canteen. It kind of felt nice to know that they had other people like me. They understood what I was going through, and we didn't even have to chat about cancer. In 2020, I became a youth ambassador, so I can help others the way they helped me. I've done so many things since I was 13. I've graduated high school, university, gotten my licence, made a move across the country. Life now is just a whole lot more fun. Please give a gift today to support more young people like me experiencing cancer. <laughs> my baby's back from the West Coast. <laughs> Hear those pictures that you asked for for your school project? First day of school, cute as a button. <laughs> so long ago. Oh, here's Grandma Florence after that flood wiped out the whole neighborhood. Sometimes I just cannot believe all the storms we've gone through here. I can only hope that we'll be able to leave this house to you one day, baby. You're our legacy. Planning for these disasters will make sure we're safe. And is the best way to protect that legacy. Ah, those <laughs> beans smell heavenly. Mm -hmm. Give Mama a little credit. You know what? We should make an emergency communication plan. That way we're ready this year. Oh, great idea. At my dorm, we have emergency kits for earthquakes and wildfires, but I'm sure there's something more local I can send you with the link. Okay, smart. I'm coming to share with you guys. Protect your legacy. Plan for natural disasters today. Visit ready.gov forward slash plan. JDRF's vision is to create a world without type 1 diabetes. Type 1 Diabetes community is at the heart of everything JDRF does. We were founded by the Type 1 Diabetes community. In the main, we are governed by the Type 1 Diabetes community, we're energised by the Type 1 community, and we're accountable to the Type 1 Diabetes community. It's on their behalf that we exist, and it's on their behalf that we must succeed. JDRF exists to rid the world of type 1 diabetes. It's easy to say, but it's hard to do. So for us, that means rallying all the resources and all the people and all the organisations required to make that a reality as quickly as possible. The world's best researchers, exciting innovative companies and the passion of the type 1 diabetes community then delivered through the health system so lives get better every day, day after day, until the day we find a cure. 
to everybody in the type 1 diabetes community, no matter your age or stage with the disease, whether you were diagnosed recently or a long time ago, we need you to know that we are here working on your behalf to deliver a world without type 1 diabetes as quickly as we can. Thank you to everybody who supported JDRF in so many ways. You are making our vision of a world without type 1 diabetes possible. Internet crimes against children in New Mexico are real. And when it comes to protecting your children, the New Mexico AG's office and the ICAC unit are on the front lines. I'm New Mexico Attorney General Hector Balderas. There's nowhere to hide for online predators in New Mexico. We are working tirelessly using state-of-the-art technology and resources to seek out and find them wherever they are. Please talk to your children about the dangers that exist online social media, games, and messenger apps. It's always important to know who you're talking to. Help fight online predators in New Mexico by submitting a tip today. We're talking tech with Alex Zaharoff-Royd on today's News Talk TNT. Thank you for being here with us at tntradio.live. I'd like to now introduce Peter Coronius, one of Australia's leading proponents of the internet, having not only founded the Internet Industry Association of Australia in 1995, but in 2022, also founded cyberminds.org, the world's first global mental wellness program for cybersecurity professionals. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Alex. Great to be back. Now, Peter, we'll speak about the CyberMinds.org program later today. But first, I wanted to speak to you about what is arguably the biggest development of our lifetime since the internet itself. And that, of course, is artificial intelligence. So what was your first experience of AI, a concept which has actually been around for decades? Mm. Hard to put your finger on it, actually, because AI has been with us a lot longer than we actually realize. Mm. I think, you know, any form of automation in the home. I guess Siri for many people mm -hmm. was the first direct encounter where they had, uh, we're talking now, what, 10 years at least since that innovation came through. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the thing with AI is that it can, it actually sort of crept in quietly under the radar when nobody was looking. And I guess the big uh, sort of game changer has been the launch of ChatGPT just over a year ago now. And of course, the ripples that's been sending through the global community at so many levels. And I think that's really what we're here to talk about, isn't it? Just what impact that's had and what the future might look like. Absolutely. Well, I mean, when was the first time you remember using ChatGPT? Was it in November when it launched or, or soon after? What, what were your Probably experiences? Three weeks, maybe after it launched. Someone sent me, uh, actually a friend of mine that's a lawyer, um, said, you need to check this out. He said, I'm using it now. And it's giving me back legal advice as good as what I would get from many lawyers. He yeah. said, occasionally it's a little off, but then I have to re-prompt it, correct it and help steer it, which is where I think people sort of give up too early with AI. Sure. And he said, once you start to give it some parameters, some direction around what precisely it is that you're looking for, it just keeps getting better and better. And after that, I, I sort of um, created an account immediately, started playing around with it, unlike many absolutely amazed with its capabilities. 
Yes, we're, we've all become prompt engineers and we've had to learn, as you just described, that uh, garbage in, garbage out. You know, if you want to get good results from a personal assistant, you've got to give them specific instructions until they sort of learn about you and know what you like to do. And it's exactly the same with your AI assistant. The more direct you are, the more descriptive you are, the more examples you give it, and the more that you sort of uh, massage what it's given you, the better results it will give. Now, Anthropic is an open AI competitor that, mm -hmm. uh, as 2023 ended, had raised over $7.6 US billion from investors, including Amazon and Google. And it recently published a paper claiming the concept of deceptive AI was mm -hmm. an absolute possibility. So noting that we need defenses against such programming being unleashed onto the world, these concerns also dovetail with the endless proclamations from all the major players that ethics in AI is something that they take very seriously. I mean, they never fail to talk about that. So what are your thoughts on the ethical development of AI and the chances of AI going rogue as so many dystopian novels, movies and TV shows have predicted? Yeah, and as we say in the technical world, it's a non-zero possibility. In other words, <laughs> you know, there is some likelihood that that, that uh, scenario could unfold. Yeah. I think that's the reason why most responsible AI developers, companies now are actually calling, unbelievably as it may seem, for government regulation to yes. set some guardrails so that I think we're trying to avoid the situation where companies are going to be using unethical practices as a competitive advantage, which I think really leads us down into a path where we don't really want to go down uh, as a global community because at that point, you know, if the thing continues in an unregulated way, then you're playing into the hands of those that might seek to abuse the technology to the detriment of you know, potentially hundreds of millions of people. And I think we have to avoid that. So, I mean, listening to people like Sam Altman, um, I believe that he has a pretty ethical sort of take on this. He's he's not uh, evasive when asked about the risks. Mm -hmm. But I think also he and many others, including I think myself, are, are quietly optimistic that this is not an, an insurmountable obstacle and I think we mm. can actually navigate to the other side where we've got AI that is actually working for the benefit of humanity and I think that's really what the, the shared vision that we all pursue. What's been the most exciting use of AI that you've seen so far and what has been the most disturbing? Mm. I mean, I'm using it on a daily basis now and for me I'm excited because I'm just, I'm now we've, I've moved to the higher versions, the paid version of GPT, GPT-4, mm -hmm. um, four it is, yep. Yeah. And um, I mean, and also using mid-journey for image creation, I think it's just amazing how quickly this machine intelligence is able to give you back very high quality work, mm -hmm. whether it be text-based or image-based or ultimately we're moving to voice-based and to video-based and and ultimately they become multimodal so that they can traverse all the different media and, and it's producing very high quality work. And as we said at the beginning, as you learn to be a better user of AI and you're learning how to prompt it properly and, and give it the kind of instructions that it is looking for, you're able to get very precise uh, results very quickly. And I think that's the promise really that's exciting. In terms of beyond my own personal experience, I'm looking at developments in medical research as a huge mm -hmm. area where we can accelerate the move towards cures for many diseases that might yeah. otherwise take decades. I'm talking about cure for cancer is now a real possibility. Um, there's a, a Google project called uh, AlphaFold where they're looking at the folding of three-dimensional protein structures 
which has a massive impact on the way the proteins function. And so from there, we're potentially looking at highly accelerated cures and treatments for disease. And, and, and I think that to me is exciting. Moving outside of medical science, I think we're excited about research that may be occurring in uh, environmental management. So uh, electric vehicle, power management systems, um, uh, efficiencies around fuel, uh, pollution control, all the things that have been to some degree, you know, the difficult problems to solve using trial and error and iteration through the traditional, you know, processes with AI, you accelerate everything. Everything that involves some form of human intellect is now highly augmented by these technologies. In terms yeah, of absolutely. the misuse, I think, um, I mean, we're very concerned about the corruption of uh, the public discourse around uh, elections, around uh, fake creation of highly convincing um, fake characterizations of, of what would seem to be factual situations, but they're not. Mm -hmm. And that in turn starts to pave the way for uh, shifts in mass psychology around people's opinions, beliefs, and ultimately their actions. And so I think there is a potential dangerous, potentially dangerous sort of pathway, which can be quite socially destructive. I, I my, my sort of heartfelt desire is that the technology is going to be used to bring people together to actually yeah. show us. In fact, interestingly, Alex, I've been pondering this, whether in fact AI might be the one thing that we need to start circling back to the question, what is it to be a human? Yeah, That's absolutely. Relief. I mean, what are the human qualities that we all share, that we all aspire to? How can we progress those? Well, that's certainly high thinking. Now, uh, I have read about how AI has been uh, in creating new cancer drugs, how AI has been able to look at a new lithium ion battery technology that uses 70% less lithium than before. So we're definitely seeing some pretty incredible uh, discoveries with AI that's ad advancing what we have been able to do in the past. Uh, even things like uh, instantly trans uh, translating old tablets that uh, normally would take people a long time, AI can sort of magically do it. But AI openly, uh, sorry, OpenAI's ChatGPT just released its long-awaited GPT App Store in the past week or so, and there's a range of custom GPTs available, including the Girlfriend AI programs, which is supposed to be banned by uh, the G Chat GPT's rules and regulations. And Microsoft also has a new the Paid Copilot Pro, which will give you access to Chat GPT 4.5 or GPT Turbo, and they have this GPT Store available. It was only launched in the last week as well. So, have you had a chance to play with some of these custom GPT systems? And are you inspired to create your own? custom GPT now that it's possible. Absolutely. I think GPT correctly harnessed and used intelligently is a massive uh, augmentation of human effort. Uh, as you intimated at the beginning, we, we're running cyber mines now. We're looking to improve the efficiency of our backend system so that we can scale more quickly and be more impactful because we're actually, you know, adding the, to the human intelligence with machine intelligence. And I think, mm -hmm. therefore, anyone that's on a social mission or even, you know, creating new product or trying to improve some situation is now in a situation where you've got basically an army of research assistants that will very soon be more intelligent than the operators. And I think that's where both the the uh, promise and the peril lie. 
Now, do you have any thoughts on how AI will evolve over the next 12 months, let alone through to the end of the decade? Yeah, actually, just returning to the previous question, in terms of some of the custom um, app applications of GPT, we would certainly be interested in building our own so that you actually are informing it as to our view of the world and, and you know, the information that we're seeking to communicate. Beyond that, I mean, the girlfriend one is sort of an interesting wrinkle in the landscape of the development. It's not a new thing. I think for as long as there's been technology, you know, people have always been looking to use it for companionship and, um, and you only have to look at how addicted people are to their phones to see yeah. that we're already pretty hooked. I think this idea of companionship through technology, uh, I'm a little bit dubious that I think, well, I don't think we could ever replace the true, true power of human communication. But I think if there are people that are feeling genuinely isolated and actually have not, no one to talk to, and they're actually looking at this even for dementia patients now as a form of something that you could communicate with that is giving you stimulation and giving you some sort of feedback as to your own condition becomes something that I think is socially beneficial. So I think as much as the girlfriend thing still seems to me to be a bit of a dubious proposition and that the women of the world need yet not not fear, yes. um, and, and in men for that matter, but that we may come to a time where you get this blending of the sort of human and machine realities. And I think that's a future that will be both terrifying but potentially pretty amazing. So Yeah. I need to rewatch the movie Her with Joaquin Phoenix where Scarlett Johansson was the AI that was inside of like a Windows computer and soon he had the phone in his top pocket and the phone was able to look out and he fell in love with the AI and it was sort of an interesting look. I mean, that was all science fiction, but now it's becoming real. And in Japan and at CES in 2022, I saw there were these uh, sort of nebulous kind of like cat-shaped robots and, and that you, they would purr and they, they would make little movements. But, of course, now they can be augmented with a, a, a GPT so that you can actually have conversations with them. And mm. they could actually be something that could give comfort to dementia patients or to, to calm them or to, to alert people it should something be going wrong. So we're going to see that, that whole robotics thing uh, really blossom over the next few years. But, look, let's now talk about cybersecurity and the massive challenges faced by today's cybersecurity professionals in mm. keeping consumers and businesses safe, even as the cyber criminals are aided by AI tools to do their evil work. So what are the challenges facing cybersecurity professionals today? Well, I think AI has definitely emerged as one of the front runners for augmenting or adding to the challenge that we already face within cybersecurity. The challenge with AI, with all technology actually, is that it empowers the bad guys as much as it empowers the good guys. Mm. And, and unfortunately, in an unregulated environment where the rule breakers are really effectively incentivized because they're not constrained by law or by social norms or any form of conscience, uh, that they tend to have the upper hand. And so there's an almost an asymmetric advantage that goes to the bad actors that are empowered by these tools. And so, <clears throat> excuse me, many cybersecurity people that I work with are raising this as an issue. It means that in practical terms, we'll be looking at more sophisticated, more targeted attacks, mm -hmm. attacks that might be characterized by an AI bot, uh, scanning the internet for everything about you, Mm -hmm. and then sending you such targeted communications that for all the world you wouldn't know that it wasn't genuine. And so you lower your guard. Uh, the AI is able to then uh, penetrate the defences, maybe jump into the network, spread, shut systems down. So 
there's that. There's also AI that can write malware. It can write computer code very well, mm. possibly soon better than humans. But it can also write malware, which is another form of computer code, but it's just malicious. And I think the issue now they're talking about polyvalent autonomous malware that gets into the system under the radar. It has no payload until it's there. And then when it's, it looks around, it works out what the environment is like and starts to bootstrap to construct its own capability once it's already inside your system. And there it's able to move and evolve in ways that might not be detectable. So I think in, 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 in a nutshell, all systems are inherently rendered less secure because of AI. But then on the counter side of that, we've, we're seeing a lot more security products coming out now that are AI enabled. And so as I predicted in my book from a few years ago, we end up moving to the battle of the AIs where you've got AI yes. fighting against AI. So at the other end of the spectrum within cybersecurity, because of these mounting and, and relentless pressures, we're starting to see uh, a toll on the, the mental and physical health of the people that are defending us simply because of the attack cycle never ends. Mm -hmm. uh, these people only have limited resources, cognitive, mental, emotional, financial. And so as a result, they're getting taxed to the limit in terms of their own capability to keep managing these threats. And as a result of that, we're seeing very high rates of burnout now in cybersecurity. So that's a big concern. And that's one reason why, well, the main reason why CyberMinds was formed, so that we can come in and bring some direct relief to teams that are suffering under burnout and stress. Yes. Well, just quickly, uh, AI has been used by both Norton and McAfee to help end users to determine whether a message that they're seeing, a, a text message, a, a social media communication is actually malicious or not. So AI is definitely being used to help the good guys. But back to CyberMinds. So what does the CyberMinds.org mental wellness program do to help combat the challenges of both burnout recovery and prevention? Mm, well, we're using a military-based protocol, one that has been tested and applied extensively in the US military predominantly it was developed by a clinical psychologist in America, Dr. Richard Miller. And it is a very powerful program for restoring people back into a sense of uh, balance, calm, uh, more effective control over their emotions, uh, ability to sleep better, which is a big one for many people mm -hmm. and non-cyber people. Um, the ability to switch off when you need to switch off and switch on when you need to be on. So I think overall, over the number of weeks that they do our program, we start to see a new resilience forming within the individual where they feel a little less captive of the flight and fight kind of emotional dynamic that can play out in an in a, uh, ongoing kind of fear or anxiety situation. And we get them back into a state where they can start to see things in perspective and effectively function more from the thinking analytical part of their brain less reactive and more capable of doing the work that they're there to do. Now, you launched in 2022. You launched then in the US and the UK last year. What has been the reaction from the industry to the CyberMinds program? It was quite surprising, really. I mean, we had a sense that there was a need, but we weren't really as aware of the degree of need until we started launching in these different markets in these different environments. And again and again, I can't tell you how many times, leaders and practitioners within cyber have come up to us and said how much need, how needed this kind of program is. They also share their personal trials and how difficult it is to maintain their connection to mission and purpose. 
So all in all, it's been a, a, a really fundamental shift in the way that we see cybersecurity now is not just a battle of technologies, but also a battle of attrition at the human level, where the attackers are seeking to wear down the psychological defences of the defenders. And, and what we're trying to do is build them up, shore them up and keep them active and happy in the game. Well, I certainly do recommend people go to cyberminds.org. That's cyberminds with a Z or a Z. Now, as we get towards the end of this interview, we've only got a couple of minutes left, but can you please share a memory of your first computer and the first time that you used the internet? Yeah, I first my first computer was an Apple Mac SE in 1985, which was pretty much when they launched. Yeah. I was a teacher then in a high school and we brought one in to use as a teaching aid to develop materials and so on. It was all, um, there was no internet then mm -hmm. we had. In 89, I left teaching and we started a design studio, design and communications and marketing studio, and we were using the internet in 1989, which I think was the first year that it landed in Australia, within months, mm -hmm. I'd say. So I guess without realising it, I was a pretty early adopter and, you know, obviously it's become an integral part of all of our lives now, but I think... You know, back in when leading the Internet Industry Association back in the um, mid 90s, sort of really delving into this question of uh, the future. And I think it remains an exciting place to be. Well, Peter Coronius, thank you very much for your time. I really do recommend people go to Cyberminds with a Z or a Z dot org to check it out. And uh, thank you so much for joining me on the very first episode of Talking, Techs, uh, Talking Tech with Alex Zaharov-Roy here on TNT Radio Live. See you next Wednesday with Chris Smith and see you next week.